I want you to turn once again to Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20, the title of what we're talking about. This would be the fifth in a series is the faith that God gives his own. Lots and lots of people in my life, in my experience, have asked honest, legitimate questions to me about how can I know if I have the faith that's required? Because the Bible makes numerous statements that faith works. We've all seen truckloads of disappointments when it looked like it did not work. And we wonder if we are misreading this, are we overdoing it? Are we leaving something out? Are we misrepresenting the word of God? Are we telling people to get their hopes up for expectation that God will do something when actually he may not? And so it's to me in my personal life, it's an ongoing investigation to make sure that I know as best I know how to know what I'm talking about. And the only evidence I can point to that I do would be my own life, my testimony. And if it works for me as common and as ordinary as I am, it works for whosoever. But because it's not working for a lot of people, it is a matter of teaching and instruction and pointing people not to a man's testimony or to a man's life, but to the Bible, to the Word of God. And say your hopes and your faith lies in the Word of God, not in the story you read about a man or the experience of somebody, but it's in Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, Matthew 17 and verse 20, he says that if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you would say unto this mountain, be thou taken up and cast into the sea, and that it will obey you. And nothing, you got to like that, nothing shall be impossible to you. You know, with all of my Christian experience, learning, doing, going, and so forth, I really would like to master that. I'd really like to know not only how that works, but to have that work for me. Would it be nice to get up every day and know that nothing is impossible to you? We know nothing is impossible with God. And God says to us, if you can believe, nothing is impossible to you either. So I can take all of my gloomy forecasts, all of my uncertainties about tomorrow, all of my disappointments, all of my fears, and I can grab them all and bring them into submission to that verse of Scripture and be free. You shall know the truth, and this is a wonderful truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, last week we began discussing certain traits, certain things about faith that makes it work so that you can know if you have faith. Well, the first thing we said, we know we have faith when our heart testifies to it because faith is a matter of the heart. You can talk faith all you want to, and as I've known a lot of preachers, you can preach it and not have it. You can talk it hoping it works. I think a lot of people are trying to confess themselves into faith, somehow believing that if I just confess something enough, maybe I'll get it. That's not what the Bible teaches. I would call that mental gymnastics. We can't make something happen because we keep saying it, just keep repeating it over and over and over. That's not the way God has given us to live. When you believe something, When the Lord has given you something and you believe it, your heart will testify to you about it. I'm not sure I can explain all the details about that, but you who have it will know it. There's no longer this uncertainty about something because you know you've got it. You just know it's in there. Romans 10.10 says, with the heart, man believes. Not with his head, not with his good intentions, not on his best behavior, but with the heart. Perhaps it's because the psalmist said, thy word have I hid in my heart. Now, if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, and the word is hid in your heart, then obviously, out of the abundance of the heart, faith will come, if you have it. 
It's people who are just not really sure they've got it. They're really not convinced and comfortable with what they're believing because it's not quite settled in the heart yet. There's other things to deal with. A second thing, we might have mentioned this in closing last week in a way that has been most prominent in my life and perhaps yours too, is that we know that we have faith because of peace. Like if I have the word in my heart as a certainty, when my conscience bears witness to the, at least to me, the certainty of something, when I am settled, I'm certain. When I'm at peace about something, it doesn't matter if you pray with me or not or if you agree with me or not. And I really, when I have something settled in my heart, I don't need somebody to join with me and help me believe. You understand what I'm saying? If I'm sure I have something in my heart, I'm not trying to believe it. I have it in my heart. It's there. I'm at peace with it. Whether other people agree with me or not or whether other people are praying with me about it or not, if I have it in my heart, I have it. I'm not soliciting prayer. I'm not saying, you all join with me in prayer. And it's not being proud. It's just that I have it. I have it in my heart. And I know I do because, well, peace. Now, let me define peace for you. Peace is freedom from agitation. Peace is a mental word. It's the freedom from being agitated, uncertain, unsettled in your mind. When a person is unsettled in their mind, it creates what is called doubt. Doubt means you're tossed to and fro in the mind. Remember in James chapter 1, if a man lack wisdom, ask of God who gives to all men liberally, but let him ask in faith without wavering. For he that wavers, now the word waver is the same Greek word as translated doubt in other places. So you could say, he that doubts is like a wave of the sea, which is driven and tossed by the wind. Now, the wind faces all of us, but not everybody is tossed around by it because some people are settled with something. The wind keeps blowing. You can't stop pressure from coming against you in life and difficult times and hardships and dire circumstances. They confront us all in this life, but they serve to prove us too. They're good for us. They make us find out where we are and what we believe. But a man that has something in his heart about God, and he's settled and peaceful in his heart, he's not shaken. He's not tossed to and fro. He's not thrown this way and that way. One of the very reasons that God put teachers in the church, everybody wants to be preached at or have a nice little sermon preached at, but God put teachers in the church specifically to keep us from being thrown around by all kinds of errors and doctrines. Remember Ephesians 4? God put in the church pastors and teachers, evangelists, prophets, and apostles. He said, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministering, till we all come. Till the church that is being ministered to, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of God and to a perfect man, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then verse 13 says that we no longer be like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Because here's what you get when you read James again about the wind wavering. If you can be tossed this way and then be tossed that way, then you're never really certain about what you believe. Because you say you believe this, but somebody comes along, has a different angle on it, and you go from what you thought you believed now to what somebody else says. If you listen to a lot of radio, TV personalities, preachers, and all of that, chances are you never will be settled in what you believe because none of them agree with each other about all things anyway. And you go to following people to the Lord, and you're this way and you're that way. You want to believe. You have a good heart. You're a nice person. I mean, you're really trying you can be counted on in the church and all of those noble and wonderful traits. But when it comes to you and Jesus and believing, just struggle with that. Well, we shouldn't have to struggle with that. 
Because again, in James 1, he says, if you're like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind, the danger is let not that man think that he shall receive anything from God because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now, if you tell a dear old saint that they're unstable, then you've got to fight. It's like somehow we sense we're not doing as well as we should do. We just don't want somebody telling us we're not. I know I'm not doing as well as I could. Just don't preach and say that I'm not doing as well as I should. Leave me alone. And consequently, we just keep being this way and that way and tossed to and fro. But when you have peace, when you have peace, it doesn't matter what man says or what your adversaries say. You have found that what God has said in his word has found that settled place of certainty in your heart, your conscience. And your convictions bear witness to it, that this is not only what God said. You know what? I'm convinced that's going to work for me. Sometimes your friends try to talk you out of it. Brother Tom, I've never heard of anybody doing that before. I remember going through this many, many years ago. Well, how do you know that God's going to do that? Has he ever done it for anybody? How do you know that God will bring this to pass in your life? How can you be sure? Well, the reason I don't act like that in those days and the reason we didn't just flop around is because I believed in my heart. I had peace about it. Now, I don't think I'm such an advanced soul that I just know how to get peace better than other people because all of this divine comfort zone that I'm talking about comes from God. If it comes from God, it has to be given. And if it's given, you can't earn it. All you can do is cooperate. And you assign yourself the task of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom and the faith for it so that you walk through this life without fear. What's that verse in the Psalms about your fears? He does what with all our fears? Does anybody re remember what God does with all our fears? He removes them. The world's full of fear. The world, as I'm standing here tonight, is about to collapse in fear, and yet nobody knows what to do. And yet some of us say, well, we will go to the Word of God and see what God would have us to do. And it is God who continually says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your steps. As we said in Sunday in the Psalm 23, he'll take you by the still waters and the green pastures. And if you do go through the valley of the shadow of death, you're not alone. He's with you. Plus your two friends, goodness and mercy, follow you all the days of your life. Well, no wonder some Christians are peaceful beings and peaceful souls. That's real. There's a reality to that. How does this kind of reality come? How does this kind of peace come? I think the more you apply yourself with your heart to know God, I think the more you put yourself in a place to learn about him, the more it comes. For example, peace is a result of knowledge. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Peace is the result of knowledge. Now, I know that some people think, oh, you just learn so much, all you do is get smart. Well, we're not trying to get smart, we're trying to get wise. How do you believe there's a difference between wisdom and smartness? A lot of smart people are dumber than a coal bucket. They don't have good wisdom. A man who has wisdom doesn't have to be smart in this world because wisdom is a spiritual thing. A lot of smart people have already rejected Christ. They don't see it his way. They don't believe in the Bible. None of them, not a one of them are smart. They write books. They're widely acclaimed for all their intellectual prowess and all the great advancements they make in some field of study. But any man and every man who turns away from God with his life is a fool. And there's no such thing as a wise fool. Or that is, they're foolish. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, he talks about knowledge, and he uses it twice here. Two times he refers to knowledge in that first chapter. Look at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you through what? Now, this is a Greek word, 
It's the word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. Gnosis is, in its simplicity, it's the act of learning. It's gathering information, gathering facts. Doesn't mean you know everything yet, but you're in the process of gathering it in. It's a learning process. But when you put the prefix E-P-I or E-P-I in front of gnosis, the word E-P-I means upon, as a result of. So as a result of your knowing, you come to the knowledge of something or the understanding of something. So we're not talking here about just going to church and trying to listen to what the preacher said, but we're talking about maybe being inspired by what you hear to get to the bottom of this yourself and to learn what that means for yourself. Not just depending on somebody, wait a week and depend on somebody to tell you what that means in your 24-hour days is to find out as much as you can for yourself. You might be really amazed if you found that God would walk into your living room, your kitchen, your house, and sit there and show you things just between the two of you that you don't learn in church. Just the fact that you're willing to withdraw yourself to your quiet place in the morning or the evening, whenever, or at noon, and just take a little time. Remember the song we used to sing, take time to be holy, speak off with thy Lord. Any of you ever go to church? Anyway, you begin to seek first the kingdom. A lot of those times is when God begins to show you things. But he says in verse 2, grace and peace. Be multiplied to you. Lots of it come your way through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it was Jesus who said, take my yoke upon you and do what? Learn of me. And as we seek to learn of him, we begin to get peace. It comes from him. Verse 3, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through. Now you think of what he did. I love this portion of scripture here because it's a, you write a book on all this. It is God who chooses out of his graciousness, out of his goodness, to give to you in this lifetime something you could not find on your own. It's God who's willing to give you all things in this life that pertain to life and not bios life, not natural life. This is zoe, Z-O-E, zoe life or spiritual life. God alone can do this. So he chooses to give to you according to, as his divine power has given unto you all things that pertain to life and godliness. The word godliness has to do with a holy relationship with God, out of which comes piety and devotion and so forth, consecration. And he says he does this one special, specific way. And your Bible says in verse 3, it is through the knowledge of God. What happens to the church? What happens to Christians if knowledge is not really that important to us? Do we miss something? Do we miss out on peace? Do we miss out on godly living, perhaps? Maybe we learn to make excuses to why I can't be a godly person because in this world, blah, 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 blah. And you say, no, wait a minute. According to his divine power, he has given everything you need to be godly so that we're without excuse. We're without excuse. Because the very thing that this world craves is peace and serenity. God has already given it to his people. If his people will come to him to learn who he is, to learn his ways, and to live in that kind of light. And God just bestows upon his people glory and joy and peace, everything that pertains to life, spiritual life. Wouldn't it be good to get up every day and dread nothing? Wouldn't it be nice if every day, every morning you got up as a result of God doing something in your life, you dreaded nothing? No aches, no pains, not even all those ads on the radio before you can turn them off. All the symptoms, you dread nothing. I think about nothing like that, talk about nothing like that because I know in whom I have believed. If God says by his stripes I'm healed, then I am. I don't need anything else. 
that's just what happens when you walk with the Lord. You just come to the place where he'll do it. He said twice here in 2 Peter 1, in verses 2 and 3, that what we need and what he's talking about comes through knowledge, and yet we're so busy. We're so busy that we really don't put much of a premium on learning things. We join a church, we're a part of a church, we function in the church, we are givers and doers and helpers and subscribers and all of those things in the church, and somehow that surely has to suffice. That has got to be what God is looking for in our life. Sometimes he rolls up and he says, no, I want you to learn about me. Our Sunday school class only lasts about after the announcements and the Sunday school recognition or the Sunday school announcements and the, we're dismissed to our class and the time the teacher clears his throat, we only have about, because I've been in this, about 20 minutes to talk about the little quarterly that's in our hand, which doesn't mean a thing to us. Mrs. Barnes, this is another lady years ago, a nice lady. She was that month our teacher in the youth class. Okay, Levi, you read the first one. Okay, what do you think about that? Okay, anybody got a comment? Okay, okay. And then, Tommy, you read that. Well, I didn't want to read that because I stuttered, but I got through it and everybody laughed and it's over. What do you think about that? You think I'm going to make some comments now about it? I don't, whatever. And the Sunday school class was over and somebody said, well, what does it mean over in Ephesians 3? I'll never forget this. In Ephesians 3. I was sitting in a choir room facing the door that goes in the sanctuary, second row back about this far from me. I remember this. And she said, Ephesians. Now, is that in the Old or the New Testament? You're not going to learn a whole lot about the Lord in a situation like that. I don't care how noble it sounds and how many stars and pins, how many of those things hang off of your lapel once a year. Sunday school pins. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. That's a good thing. If we don't know any more about Jesus now than we did 20 years ago, we haven't grown. We're really not doing anything the way he wants it done because we don't know what to do. We don't know always how to pray about things because we don't know how to pray. We can't have faith for very much because we really don't know what faith is. We have a concept, but we don't know. And there's this tossing to and fro in our minds, in our hearts. We pray that God, if we are sincere enough and we plead hard enough and maybe cry out, then maybe that will convince God to do something. That's not the way God has moved. He's moved my faith. That's what he responds to. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. When it comes back, it comes back full. But if we don't know how to send it back and all we know how to do is just sort of plead with God, if we don't know how to make application of this word, we are, of all people, unpeaceful. And we aren't noted for spiritual life, godliness, because we've never really been taught what that means and how we can find that. I was 28 years old, a member of the Christian church in Charlestown. And I can honestly tell you, I didn't know anything. Outside the cross, uh, the tomb, uh, walk on the water, blind men. That's the meaningless religious life that I had. A few obscure facts about Jesus and though I call myself a Christian, I would have to admit I was saved by a stranger because I didn't know him. Didn't know anything about him. I was just a church boy. And as a result, I look back today, and after all these, how old am I, 100? Look back after all these years at that life, and I think, no wonder so many of us never did well, and our parents never did well, and our grandparents never did well. Nobody ever showed us how to do well. Nobody ever taught us. Nobody ever said, bring your Bible this morning. We're going to teach for at least a half an hour. Oh, oh, don't talk that long. But a lack of interest, not really earnest about it, just members of churches. And we even came to conclude that all Christianity is the same. None of them believe anything. They're all going to the same place, just different ways of getting there. 
So what difference does it make where you go to church? What difference does it make if you own a Bible? What difference does it make if you believe it? Let's just say in unison that I don't understand it. Let's just leave it there and say, God knows I'm stupid. It doesn't matter. And yet one day you get older in life. Your years are rolling by pretty quick. You know the sun's going to set just a few years. Now I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about other people. And you realize that that day is coming. There's a kind of a dread. I don't know if I'm ready. But you would never admit you're not ready because people think you spent all those years in vain in church. If you said, I don't think I'm ready. Oh, man. Remember Romans 5.1 we read last week, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. You can't have peace unless you've been made right with the Lord. If you've never been made right with the Lord, you try to put works and helps and memberships and baptism and all that stuff to substitute for it. But there's something on the inside of your life that's just ain't going to work. And so praise God, he brings us to a place to teach us. We just had our clock for the most part, for the most part, and put more emphasis upon our spiritual need than our free time. And take advantage of every opportunity. I think the Bible calls it redeeming the time. Isn't that still in the Bible, to redeem the time? And begin to emphasize that so that we can know in whom we have believed and become persuaded that he who's promising all these things can be counted on to do it, to have peace in my heart about that. But faith comes from knowing. Like Paul said, I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded. And God puts this kind of premium on knowledge himself. In John 17, 3, you don't have to turn to it. I'm sure you know it by heart. John in 17, 3, the last discourse of Jesus before the cross he said, and this, and this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only wise God, and so forth. And think of it. This is eternal life that they may know. Boy, teach us thy way, O Lord, that we may walk in thy truth, unite our hearts to fear your name. This is eternal life that they may know thee. John 17, 3. A second thing about peace, peace is a result of righteousness. Now, that may sound like a heady word and, oh, righteousness. Now we're getting into theology. Well, it doesn't have to be difficult. I like the simplicity that can be brought forth in the Bible to understand difficult things in an easy way because God does that. If you think of righteousness in the sense of what is right, that God gives you. God's ways are right ways. A man that has a right relationship of God dwells in righteousness. And isn't this true? That when you do right things, you have peace? For example, has it ever cost anybody to tell the truth? Now, if you tell a lie, because the world's given to lying. People lie all the time. They don't think a thing about it. Are you behaving yourself? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and they're not. They're not. They really aren't. But when you tell the truth about something, you have peace. When you tell a lie, there's this nagging thing called guilt. It's a thing that hangs over the back of you that never lets you not know that you're wrong. God never approves of wrongness. You didn't get that wrongness. You know what righteousness is? I make up another word, wrongness. If you lie, you're wrong. Your heart tells you you're wrong. The little siren inside, you're wrong. And you may act right. Oh, I swear to God. They say, well, now you're wrong again. I would never do that. Now you're wrong again. And just keep lying and convincing yourself that what you did that was wrong somehow is right because everybody's doing it. Isn't that what kids say about the way they want to dress? Places they want to go, places they want to hang out, everybody else is doing it. Well, what if they're all going to hell whenever they die? What if all of them are going to fall into a sinner's hell when they die? You want to go with them? 
no, I don't want to do that. Well, then you start thinking about now who you're running with and where they're going. It's going to cost you to do right. Anybody can lie. Anybody can cheat. Anybody can steal, be deceitful, misrepresent themselves. It requires nothing but human nature to do that. Just do it. Spare yourself. Save yourself. Just don't tell the truth. Tell a lie. Secretaries, and then somebody says, wait just a minute, it's so-and-so. Tell them I'm not here. She says, well, I'm sorry, he's not here. You're not here, are you? Okay, no, he's, he's not here. Is that a lie? Is it okay because it's a job? Well, no, it's not right. You're going to give an account for that. That was a, a moral and ethical choice you just made. You chose in the care for your job and maybe how you're represented to your boss to set aside whatever God said to do what your boss says. He told you to lie and you said, I lie. And you got this nagging guilt, not peace, but you come to church, you try to sing, you try to get in the mood of the Spirit, and your conscience begins to burn. Don't tell me it doesn't happen because too many people have gotten quiet over the years. It just builds up on the inside. You sort of give up hope of ever being the way you ought to be because it's so hard. And yet there comes a day you say, I'm going to tell the truth. It might cost me my relationship with my boyfriend, my girlfriend, or my boss or with my friends, I'm going to tell the truth. They gave me too much change. They gave me back $3.36 change for a cup of coffee. Now, this hadn't happened. I'm making this up. And so the girl there, she was trying to count, and she couldn't count. She just gave some money here. So I take that money, and I'm thinking, woo I'm going to make off like a bandit here. Look how much money I got. I got a 50-cent cup of coffee. I got $3.30-something back. As a Christian, what does your heart say? It isn't yours. Give it back. Well, they don't need it. That's what we say about taxes. So you give it back and say, ma'am, you gave me too much money. There's only 50 cents, and I'm sorry, you gave me too much. And they look at you like, who are you? Or they usually ask, what church you go to? See, in that case, it's a good thing. But at night, your mind says, $3.30-some-cents. Look on your Visa card. They refunded you 350 bucks, and it has met somebody else. Man, you're doing good this month. You call them back and say, that's not my money. I don't know whose that is, but that's not mine. Oh, thank you very much. You go to bed at night and you go, I got no sirens going off. I'm not tormented by anything. I have this day done something right, and God has given me peace. Just did the right thing, telling the truth, being honest, straightforward, just doing things the way God would have you to do things. Turn to Isaiah 32 for just a moment. Isaiah 32 and verse 17. And isn't it also true that when you say the right thing, you have peace? And when you do the right thing, you have peace? When you say the wrong thing, you have torment? When you do the wrong thing, you have torment. Various degrees of it anyway. Listen to this, Isaiah 32 and verse 17. And the work of righteousness shall be what? Now, do you see how that works yet? When you do what's right, whether it's trusting God and not something else, whether it's leaning not your own understanding and, and doing it God's way, when you do the right thing, though there's a war that takes place, there is also peace that's assigned to come to you. And though the night may rage long and dark and difficult, come morning, God so often brings his wonderful deliverance. And you've got this thing in your heart you've never had before. Not only 
is there this joy about the victory you have, but there's also this confidence that you've gained in God through the night. And when you know that somebody as simple and plain as you are can live like this, it just brings peace. And you start hanging around people who want to gossip and yap and carry on things that are wrong. You say, you know what? I don't want to violate my peace. I'm not going to listen to that. Or I'm going to tell them you shouldn't do that. It is still in the Bible in Galatians 6, 1, if you see a brother overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Now, that won't endear you to a lot of people, but it'll give you peace with God. I tried, Lord. Through the years, I've said a lot of things that I felt like the people respond to is hard. That's hard. Man, that's hard. And while you grieve a little bit because now you're causing people to struggle with spiritual matters, the good side of it is when they're willing to engage the Lord and, and get to the bottom of this thing and some victory begins to come into their life and things begin to turn around for them, praise God for that. Because like what Peter said about Paul, some of the things that he has to say are hard, hard to understand, hard to bear, man. He bears down. But we have dismissed ourselves from bearing down for so long in a religious system that cared not what we learned that to suddenly start being taught and insisting that you listen, wow. But aren't you glad you're still here? After all these years, you're still here getting hammered on by that old man. I hope you're glad about it. Praise the Lord. But he said, and the work of righteousness shall be peace Notice the second part, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. You did the right thing. You said the right thing. I gave it my best shot. Not Frank Sinatra said I did it my way, but you say I did it God's way. And while people turn away from you or they reject you or they leave you or they talk about you, when I lay my head down at night, when you lay your head down at night, we sleep. We're not full of guilt because we haven't told the truth. We have tried to tell the truth. Remember what Paul said in Acts 20? He said, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. He was able to say this. As I stand before God, my conscience is clear. I took nothing from you. I talked you out of nothing. I didn't misuse you or abuse you. I told you the truth, spared nobody anything. From those that were struggling with diseases and stuff, I told you that God healed. And those of you that weren't, I told the whole thing. Paul said, when I stand before the Lord, my conscience is not condemned. I doesn't say it exactly those words, but that's just the picture you get. You live an honest, upright heart because that's the right kind of life that a man ought to live. How about in Hebrews 12? Remember this one, if when a man is chastened? Turn over there, Hebrews 12, verse 11. When a man is chastened, why would God chasten you? To correct you, doesn't he? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. When God deals with you to correct you, maybe puts you on your back or on your face or deals with you sometimes harshly and you feel like God is against you, you've lost your religion or whatever. He said, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, what does chastening or the correction that God brings into your life, what does it do in your life? Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those that are trained by it or exercised thereby, to those that are trained by it. Does it say this, that God, knowing that we're all frail in a lot of ways, that we all give up easy in some areas or that we're all a little bit difficult in some areas, that God, to correct those areas, chastens us? He chastens us. That is, he deals with us privately. He brings us into his own quarters and he begins to deal with us. You hear something, you don't want to do it, and then you find yourself wishing you had done it. God deals with your attitudes. 
your ideas and your mindsets, things that don't honor him, he deals with it. We can't see those things. God can. But he begins to deal with it because he wants to correct that because eventually that's going to control your life if he doesn't. So God deals with you and he deals with your attitude and he deals with things in your life. And afterward, afterwards, when you get the message and the light comes on and you see it and you go, oh, I see it, Lord. And your life does begin to change because God only does this to people he loves. Whom he loves, he chastens and corrects every son that he receives. He's not going to leave you alone. He that started a good work is going to what? He's going to finish it. He may leave the world alone, but he's going to leave you alone. So he starts doing this work of correction. Oh, God. And one day you find 20 years later, you're saying, praise God. Because all of the effect of what he's doing has changed you from a sniveling little something to something that's got some backbone now. And he says, it's the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Does that mean that doing things God's way, doing things the right way brings forth fruit? Peaceable fruit. Would that also include seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Didn't he say that? Seek the kingdom, not just seek membership, but seek the kingdom and what's right, his right ways. I spoke of Romans 10 a while ago. It says, with the heart man believes, resulting in what? Righteousness. Romans 10, 10. With the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You know that. Not only does peace come from knowing and learning, peace also comes from doing right. And thirdly, when you really have peace in your heart and you're settled, that peace becomes the judge of your actions. It will cast light and judgment on all your actions, your thoughts, your words, and your deeds. Colossians 3, 15. Colossians 3, 15. I want you to turn to it because I don't want you to take my word for it. Your Bible says that let or allow, which is a choice you have to make, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be you thankful. Now, does your scripture say, let peace rule in your heart? Well, what does that mean? How are we to understand that? In what way can we make application of this simple verse in our life? Because the word rule has to do with judging. Like at a ball game, the Olympic Games, there were officials, like there are games today on basketball, football, whatever kind of game is played. There are men who have to officiate the game. They call fouls or infractions. Their job is to do that. In a court of law, there is a judge who sits at the bench. He's like an umpire. He oversees the whole thing going on and listens to everything, and he reaches a decision. He brings judgment. Now, the Bible says if you have peace in your heart, if you've come to this and you're growing and you can measure what you believe by how peaceful you are about it, then that will rule your life because if you don't have peace about something, then you know better than to try to jump in and act like you do. God knows we've seen a lot of that in 30 years I've been here. People thought they believed, acted like they believed, and then we had a problem. A man who has peace in his heart will judge what he believes, will judge what he's given to do or what is before him, but whether or not he has peace about that. Again, that lady years ago came up and asked me to pray for her, agree with her that up in Indianapolis that Oral Roberts would start a university up there. I don't know that he wants, God wants the Oral Roberts to start a university up there. I can't just dream up something to agree with and act like it's going to work. I have no peace about that. Would you? I have no peace about that. But when you have peace, your peace becomes a judge. As he said here, that it becomes a judge of your thoughts and the intents of your heart. Because you see, peace connects you to your conscience. Remember that time in John 8, they were going to stone that woman they caught in adultery? And they brought her and they were going to stone this woman. And Jesus said, he that is without 
sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And what did they do with their sweaty little stones they were holding? And they dropped them and they walked off. And the Bible says, for they were convicted by their conscience. We got one too. And would to God, our conscience was ruled by peace. That if I'm sure God said it and I believe it, if I'm convinced that's in the word of God, that's what I'll believe. Would to God that all of God's people live like that. Then when you hear things that aren't in the word, say, no, I can't go that way. I'm not allowed to believe that. Well, I'm glad you can all that fine, but I, not me, I, I can't go there. Because of peace. I love peace. I love to have peace. I mean, I could go through a lot of testimonies about other people that I prayed for that it didn't look good, but I knew in my heart God was going to fix it, make it right, or things were going to turn out right, and it did. I don't know how many times to my fault I prayed for people that when I prayed for them, I knew. I knew in my heart it wasn't going to work. I knew it wasn't going to work. I don't know why it didn't work. I just knew. Not because I laid hands on them or because I held hands with them. I just knew that something that I did not know was not the way it ought to be. And no matter how hard you pray and who else joins you in prayer, it isn't going to work. What if I was honest enough to say, well, I can't pray for you to do that because it won't work for you. Whew, we lost another member. But I wonder if that would provoke the person you were going to pray for to begin to investigate their life carefully to see why am I not the way I should be? What if I said, do you really have peace about this? Where's the verse? I think it's in Acts 14. While Paul was preaching, there was a man impotent in his feet. He never had walked. And Paul, the Bible says, steadfastly beholding him that he had faith to be healed, said to the man, he didn't say to anybody else. What about that? Paul looked at the man like I'm looking at that boy over there, and he looked at that man, and he knew that he had faith to be healed. And so he said to him, stand up right on your feet and walk, and the guy did. Now, I don't think he did that everywhere he went. Why? Because he couldn't. But when he had this impression that came from God and he knew, I'm sure this will work. Well, how do you know? I can't explain it. I just know it will. And he didn't try to prove anything. Say, all right, y'all watch this. In Acts 27, verse 25, the ship was breaking apart in Paul's journey. And Paul said, be of good cheers. I believe God. But I believe God It's going to be just like the Lord told me. They barely escaped. They had to swim, and they probably had bruises all over them and beaten on the rocks, but every man lived. Nobody died. They lost everything, but they all lived. And there was Paul smiling. So I said, yeah, he can smile. He didn't lose anything. But their lives were all spared because he believed. The reason I think sometimes we take that step of faith, whether it's prophesying or the gifts of the Spirit or whatever, is because we have this confidence and peace in God that this is an hour he's called us to do such a thing. Take prayer, and then we'll go to the next one. Philippians chapter 4. And look at verse 6. Be careful for nothing. Now, the word careful is the same word that's translated in the Sermon on the Mount. Take no thought. Why take your thought? The same thing. We're talking about worry and anxiety. He said, worry about nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and. And what? And the peace of God that passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Is that why some people are sure? Is that why some people that you know or have known are not tore up ever? At any moment of any day, they have peace. What's guarding them from falling apart? What's keeping these particular people from just falling apart? Is it that they choose to take no thought? 
Verse 6 is because they will not be careful or anxious or worry about anything. Worry is where fear comes from. And that's what doubts a cousin to. And they say, that doesn't work. I used to do that. God's taught me better than that through the years. And as I've applied that, it's worked. So I'm not going to give up on it now because if it worked then, it'll work now. So be careful for nothing. He said, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And this is the promise God makes to all of you sitting in here and sitting out yonder tonight. And the peace of God shall guard your hearts and minds. Peace, peace, wonderful peace coming down from the Father above. Sweep over my spirit forever, I pray, in fathomless billows of love. Peace. Walking through life with a smile on your face. The broadcast, the forecast, all the prognostications of this world are gloom and doom, and you're walking through life without a care. Not worried about any of it. Not a care in the world. Do you hear what they're saying? Of course I hear what they're saying. Also, when I hear what they're saying, I make a choice. I can either believe what I'm hearing is true and respond with uncertainty, which would deny the Lord that bought me, or I can say, well, having spent time with the Lord, I have the assurance in my heart and the peace that goes with it that God will take care of this, and that really does become like a guard, a sentry over my heart to keep me in all of my ways. You become, in doing that, a living testimony. Doesn't the Bible say, be ready always to give an answer to every man of the reason of the hope that is within you? Doesn't it say that? We are living testimonies. Our Sermon on the Mount, we need to teach that again, but our Sermon on the Mount tells us that our lives are like cities set on a hill. We're like a shining lamp that's burning. The whole design of this, the city on the hill looking up, the light in society, the whole purpose of that is so people can see something they don't have. The world lies in darkness, and God puts light in the world. And the light is a contrast to the darkness, and they see themselves in darkness and not sure what we're going to do, and the gas prices are going up, and housing market is falling apart, and the world's falling apart, and everybody's killing everybody, and there's chaos all over the world. Oh, and yet... You know all of that's going on. We don't deny that. But I know something better than that. I cast all my cares upon him. I lay all of my burdens down at his feet. And any time I don't know what to do, I just cast all my cares upon you. And you walk as though he's going to take care of it. And you know what? He does take care of it. Another thing I want to tell you about concerning how you can know that you have faith, I'll brief these. If you have faith, if you have the kind of faith that works, you'll fight. You don't give up. You don't give in. You fight. The only thing you've got that works is faith. Well, what about knowledge? If all you have is knowledge, all you have is knowledge. Unless knowledge becomes faith, it'll get you nowhere. Faith comes by hearing, but if all you do is hear and you don't believe, all you have is knowledge. It'd be nice to be knowing a lot of things about God and becoming, you know, a heavyweight in the world of knowledge, but it's meaningless unless you believe it. God knows that schools and learning and higher education, whether seminaries or other kind of schools, are full of people that know way more than all of us know. But whether or not they trust any of it Live according to it, I don't know. And if they don't, then all of their knowledge is superficial. It's just superficial. Else, only the smartest people in life would make it through life well. But God didn't pick the smartest people in the world to follow him. I know one he didn't pick that wasn't the smartest one in the world, and I've learned this. He can give wisdom to the least of us, and he can bypass the smartest ones. He can do that. You read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he can do all of that. But faith will fight. If God gave you something, you want to keep it. 
how would you do? Let me take a picture here. Let me find somebody. Let me pick up. Let's talk Jay and Becca over here. Jay's a good Hoosier boy. What if Jay and Becca are walking down the street, just been married two or three months, and just happy, holding hands, glazy-eyed and giggly and all of that, and they're walking down the street, and some young lady comes twisting up through there, swishing around and all, you know, undone. And she looks at Jay, and she says, you a good-looking man. I'm going to call you Superface. <laughs> and kind of gives him a little shoulder thing as she goes by and a little wink. Now, I'm glad Becca has a little bit of Hamilton in her. But I don't think she would just go sit down at some convenient stool in the city and sit down and start <laughs> Somebody said, what's the matter, Becca? Some girl is trying to take Jay away from me. Are you going to let her? I don't know what to do. Well, fight. Now, in the natural realm, it would be what we don't do. <laughs> I'm talking about a hair pulling, screaming, yelling, scratching, kicking, bawling, throwing on the ground and all that. But I would imagine, I would imagine if somebody come twisting around and she was with Jay and stuff, she might get between him and Jay and say, look, honey, I don't know who you are, what you're after, but you're barking up the wrong tree. Now, you better get. <laughs> or something more spiritual than that. <laughs> well, what if it was the other way around? What if some Superman came up in his tank top? <laughs> Big muscles bulging, got his little six-pack under his belly there. Looks good. Looks at Becca and said, well, you say, darling... I don't think Jay would say, Mr. Hamlet, I don't know what I'm going to do. Somebody try. I would expect him to send him and say, you better hit the road, brother. Or, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Let me ask you something. Is something precious worth fighting to keep? You have to fight to get faith. Because the devil does everything he had to keep you from getting it. And if you've got it, you will fight to keep it. And you won't let go of it. And you will see the power that is behind it when you read what God says faith will do. You know, these things go out because you believe. And you begin to fight. God requires us to fight. He said fight the good fight of faith, didn't he? So if the devil begins to try my faith, and like I said, I started this with saying, how can you know that you have faith? You won't give up. You won't do like so many have done in the past, just well, I tried it and it didn't work. I just don't know if it's going to work. You'll fight. The next to the last book in the Bible, the little book of Jude, talks about us earnestly contending for the faith. Remember that? Earnestly contending for the faith. Whether in a discussion with somebody or in a debate or in those dark nights in which you're tempted to give up and quit. You've got to earnestly, I'm talking here about a word that has to do with effort. Earnestly contend for the faith. Agonize, work at, roll in the dirt, fight, swing, kick, draw your sword, keep swinging, throw your shield up, keep swinging, fight. Because God has given you the assurance that if you hold fast to what you believe, it'll work. You may have to go through a night when it doesn't look like it works, but God cannot lie. He wouldn't tell you that it will work and then turn around and let it not work. You got to fight. A faith that doesn't fight is not faith. The faith that does not fight is not faith. Because if you really have the assurance that God will do something, you will not let the devil or anybody else take it away from you or talk you out of it. I know what I believe. And the fourth thing about how to know that you have faith is because you rejoice. You rejoice. Why would you rejoice? Because I know I've got something. Take Levi here. Let's say that young Levi Martin here had a bad day today. Worked all day, didn't get paid. Didn't feel good when he got up this morning, fought that battle all day long and ran out of gas on the way here. Had a flat tarp when he got home after he got some gas 
and then the car wouldn't start and he had to find a ride. So he came to church loaded with joy. Now let's say somebody met young Levi at the door out there before he came in and said, uh, looking for Levi Martin, you, you anybody here? And said, somebody said, yeah, he's coming. That's him right there. Who are you? Well, I'm the CEO of some something. Got a lot of money, okay? He's got an envelope, nice-looking suit on. Are you uh, Levi Martin? Yes. At the end of this service tonight, whenever you come out the door, when the preacher's through, I've got this money for you. Well, why are you giving it to me? Maybe I just want to. How much is it? It's $300,000. Now, see, this, he's already smiling. <laughs> he's, don't take off, brother. He was unlaced his shoes. He's going to run. But let me ask y'all something. Why would he start smiling? He doesn't have it yet. Do you have the money yet? Let's play like this. It's real. Did he give it to you when he, when he came in here? Well, why are you smiling? You don't even know who he is. You never met him before. You've never seen him before. How do you know he's still out there, Levi? I don't know that he's still out there, but I believed his words. He said he was the CEO of I Own It All Company or something. Or you could take the local banker in town, somebody that you did know that whose reputation is pristine, and he shows you the check, uh, not cash in the envelope, but a check, 300 grand, with your name on it, good at any bank in America. You'd better cash it quick, though. And so <laughs> Levi's sitting here smiling. I can talk about going to hell and turn or burn. He's just smiling. Why? Because I know something. I haven't seen it. I haven't felt it. I can't guarantee it. I can't even make this work. I was told it'll work. And because I believe it, it'll work. And I have this assurance in my heart because I'm counting on the reputation of the man that showed it to me. He couldn't have that job unless he was honest. And he showed me the check. Something in my heart like a stream running. Why is he so happy? Preaching too long, hot in here, his car's not starting. Whew. And he's smiling. Why? You know why? Because he believes in something. And he walks outside and gets his reward after church is over. And we all followed him, of course, to see if it would work. Then next week you see any more of them fellers coming to church now. <laughs> and he went out there and got his reward. But before he got his reward, he was rejoicing. And the reason he was rejoicing is because he believed the report. Folks, we've been given something better than $300,000. We've never seen Jesus either. We can't even prove that every word in this book is true. I can't even prove that there is a, a bank of heaven or whatever to verify anything. I just know that if you believe this book, the content of it will come to pass in your life. Not everybody believes that. Because if Levi sat in the back of the room and said, Levi, door cracked. And he's still there. Okay, praise the Lord. He's still back there. Okay. Then he's really not sure, is he? But if he comes down front here and sits like he is now and got that smile on his face, 300,000, Levi, you could get a new Kia. They're not bad cars anyway. But anyway, isn't that where we are? All I'm saying is if you know you've got it, you'll begin to rejoice. Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are true, whatever things are of a good report, and on and on, he said, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, believe that. Believe that. Let your request be made known unto God with thanksgiving because though I haven't had the manifestation of my answer yet, I believe that God heard me. I believe that God's going to do it. Praise the Lord. Isn't that what we're supposed to do with what we believe? Instead of saying, I believe God's going to do this. Oh, oh God. Oh, he's not doing that about that man outside. He's sitting in here peaceful. I saw the man's face. I saw him. I saw the check. And all of his buddies got out and said, oh, Levi, you've been deceived. Oh, don't believe that. Nobody in the world would do that. And Levi said, I've already seen it. 
Well, when my heart's embraced it, I'm praise God. You won't get it, but I will. Peace. Joy. Just the assurance that God is going to do it. These are things that we need so badly. And this is why, fifthly, you overcome. This is why we overcome. We prevail. We just won't give up. We just won't let go. Remember where we started our text? Remember what it was? If you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you would say to this mountain, be up and head for the sea. You didn't doubt in your heart, but you believe those things you say shall come to pass. It will happen. So in closing, real faith always works. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to bless your word to your people. Keep us in your loving care. Continue to guide us. Make us to see clearly the way we're supposed to go and give us a heart to go that way. I ask you to bless all of these people here tonight. Give us a simple message and a simple understanding of such a profound thing. I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.